I uh, have been praying for you as a congregation even before the events of this week and even more so to hear that you experienced a, a, a painful loss. And uh, my thoughts and prayers are with you and I know the kind of pain that that can be. And so I'm recognizing that this morning. As was mentioned, I serve at uh, Park Hills Free Church in Freeport, Illinois and nearly 25 years there in total and a great season of ministry. Uh, highs and lows and, and all kinds of experiences that can happen in that uh, duration of time. And uh, even just last Sunday was just a, a beautiful Sunday for us, one of the ones that I'll remember uh, probably for the rest of my life. God is moving there. Uh, we've raised our kids there and are still doing that. We have great friends and, and great connections and a wonderful staff team that I, I love dearly and, and a home that we love. So a common question is, uh, why, do, why do you want... Uh, to leave. And uh, I was asked that at uh, a Q&A session yesterday, and I gave them a startling and sarcastic answer at that, uh, just to test everybody's heartbeat, but uh, I'll let you ask what that was uh, later on if you want. But um, the answer is we don't. And uh, my wife and I were not searching or looking. My resume was not out anywhere. Um, but what we do want to do is serve the Lord and follow his leading wherever that may be. And we consider ourselves to be the Lord's servants, and that means that we go where he desires. And so our desire is just to know the, the Lord's will, just like you as a congregation are praying for that as well. I will say that seeing your ministry profile when I was reached out to was uh, uh, wonderful. I mean, it was wonderful to see the history of ministry that, that Parkview uh, has and the, the history of ministry right here and with the school and, and the spot and all those wonderful things that are going on. That was very intriguing, and I hope you just give God praise for that. I also saw that, you know, there were some difficulties along the way, and that's often the way it is in ministry. And I just encourage you, God is still on his throne and still working in a mighty way. Some of the needs that were identified in your church bio are, are ones that kind of drew my attention, and some of those things, uh, God has allowed me to be used in that way, uh, to be a blessing to congregations in the past, and so that's part of why I, I uh, reached out and, and checked into this situation a little bit more. I want to share with you my personal mission statement. This is something I don't share with, with everybody. It's not up on a wall or anywhere, and I don't even memorize it because I've adjusted, enough, uh, adjusted it enough times over the years as I've experienced things. But this is my statement. I exist to honor Christ by loving and leading my family in godliness, to make disciples and raise up leaders for God's kingdom. Faithfully and truthfully proclaim the word of God with a spirit of humility and of love, Realistically assess my strengths and weaknesses with an understanding that God has no limits. Question could be asked, what does a preacher preach on a candidation Sunday when I want to give a first impression? And a pastor friend of mine always said, he said, never ever preach your best or favorite sermon when candidating because if they hire you, they'll be disappointed Sunday after Sunday after that. So I did not choose my best and brightest message for today, although I tend to like all of mine, and that's not uh, anything of me, it's just I love the word and I love to preach it. With that said, I actually just chose to jump into the book of Acts, right where you have been going and where your pastors have been doing a fantastic job of leading you. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 6 in a moment here. I've entitled the message, uh, Problems and Possibilities. 
You see, complaints had arisen within the church and, and people aren't happy. And I, I don't know how long you've been around a church, but that's not a new concept to anybody in a church. People not being happy at church or complaining about something is not a new thing. If that's happening here, it wasn't invented here, I promise you. But this may have been new for them. This is such a new church, such a new body of believers. We know what it's like if you've been around a church. You hear a lot of phrases like, why don't we ever do this? Or, or we used to do it like this. Or the sermon is too, is too short. Or the sermon is too long. Or not enough music. Or the music's too loud. Or it's the wrong style. Or the youth ministry broke this, right? Um, or the kids' ministry, we need this and we need that. And no coffee, or who, who stained the Jones Memorial carpet, right? I cannot tell you how many times I've heard the various phrases that I've just shared. Look with me now at the book of Acts, chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Let's pray together. Father, we do commit this time to you now and we lay it at your feet and, and we just thank you that we have an opportunity to gather to lift our praises before you because you are holy and mighty and worthy of our adoration and our focus and our love. Father, we recognize your decision to send Jesus as our Savior and, and Jesus, we offer you our praise and our thanks and our adoration Holy Spirit, we just ask you to move and work in, in this place and in our hearts. Lord, help us to see what we need to see and to hear what we need to hear and respond appropriately. And we ask you to be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. So anytime you're studying scripture, context is very important. It's essential. And if you've been attending here, you know what the context is in that uh, the pastors have been taking you through this so far. And, and Luke gives us a little bit more context right here. This is the time when things are going well. Miraculous stuff has been happening. Uh, bold speeches made to the Sanhedrin. Apostles beaten because they were so bold and would not stop proclaiming the good news of Christ. There's an, in, an increasing group of believers Back up with me now, a couple verses into chapter 5 again, just to kind of help set a little more of that context. Verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. They're in a season of success, ministry success here. Now, it's worth noting that ministry success is defined different ways by different people. And it's important that ministry success is defined properly. Quite often, we just want to go right to uh, how many butts are there in the seats, right? And, and uh, sort of a, a Baptist way of doing it, if you will. How was the offering and how was the attendance? But there's more to it than that. And what we see here, it's quite clear. This is a brand new church built on the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Christ was growing. They were focused on proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ was God in flesh and he lived among mankind. He died on a cross as a ransom for those sinners by faith to find him. And he rose again in victory over the grave. 
This was their focus, and it should be the focus of every church. And Luke wants us to see here that a complaint now has, has arisen in the season of ministry success, in, in a season of growth and fulfillment of the great commission and great commandment of Jesus Christ. I've been in ministry long enough to know that when hearts and lives are being changed for Christ and disciples are being made, problems will arise. As I've reviewed your history here, all the wonderful things that God has done, I'm not surprised that there have been some speed bumps in the road and some trials that have come along the way. Here we've got a complaint from the Hellenist group toward the Hebrew group. And the complaint is prejudicial treatment. You've studied how uh, that these early believers would share with anyone as they had need. They had people selling their properties and laying it at the apostles' feet, right, so that it could be distributed to those who have need. And this is sort of what's been going on. Now, while all were, were Jewish by heritage or conversion, not all lived the same way. So the problem existed here. Now, when the, the Hellenist and the Hebrew Jews are mixing together, and, and it arose because there's a pre-existing division between the people. The Hebrews spoken of here were sort of the, the good Jews, if you will, who were likely residents there. These are Palestinian Jews, descendants of Jews who returned from exile in Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra. They would have tightly adhered to the law as well as they could. They would have followed the instructions of the Pharisees and the religious leaders about whom they were to associate with, how to wash properly, you know, a good 60 seconds under hot water, rubbing your hands together, you know, and then hand sanitize afterwards and reapply your mask, whatever the rules were. What not to do or what not to touch, how to do your work, how to interact with others, how to stay a good distance from Gentiles, whose Instagram to have and not have. They're more traditional in their lifestyle and dress and customs. They had a different opinion than the other Hellenist Jews. Can you imagine being in a church where there are different opinions within that church? If you've been around church, I think you can. Different opinions about lifestyle, about how to dress, about music or the order of things, whatever it may be. So it's important to know the Hellenist Jews here were, were different in that they were likely descendants of Jews who did not return from, uh, or return to Palestine after exile. They were dispersed around various nations and were still Hebrew by origin. But the problem was they acted and looked more like Gentiles than like Jews, according to the Hebrew Jews. They're growing up and residing in these other foreign lands. They would have spoken Greek in most cases. They were a mi minority group of the two. And they were often looked down upon for acting more Greek than Jewish. Now, many of these Hellenist Jews were careful not to worship the, the gods of the Greeks around them, but there were still those di differences in definitions. If you've been around a while, maybe you could understand the picture of of having a, a man walk into a Southern Baptist church 30 years ago wearing torn up jeans and a t-shirt 
and not carrying a 25-pound King James Bible. It would have been quite a sight. Some years ago, when I was a youth pastor in Florida, our lead pastor had led a man to Christ, and that man came to church on a Sunday morning. First time he had been there. Wasn't familiar with how church went, but he came down, and he sat right in the front row, right on the corner, and people in church know nobody sits in the front row, right? Just, just a few exceptions, right? You don't, those are, you know, you can't, not safe territory for whatever reason, but he came down, he sat right in the front row, and he was singing along and just kind of uh, enjoying the service or whatever, and it got time for this pastor to step up and start to preach. And this is the pastor that led this man to Christ. And, and, and the poor pastor, he's up here, he's starting to preach. And it wasn't even five, six, maybe on the, on the long end, uh, eight minutes into the service. And this, this man in the front row, his head started to tip back every now and then. And it was tipping back again. And it wasn't bad enough that he fell asleep with his head back like this, right in front of everybody. But he literally began to snore and loud. And it's just, you know, and then to be like this, and nobody knew what to do. My pastor, my dear friend, I'm watching his eyes and watching him try to keep focus and keep going on. And finally, one of the elders came up and with a coffee and sat next to the guy, and the guy said, oh, thanks, you know, he's drinking that. But it went on, and there's this, all of a sudden, there's this messy issue in ministry. And that's what we're seeing here in this text. The two groups are unified by their belief in Jesus, as they should have been, but sadly, that did not automatically remove all their prejudices. Maybe if you've been a Christian for a number of years, but you didn't grow up in a Christian home, you didn't know what it looked like, and you came to Christ, and you found that you were still carrying many of those old ways of thinking and old ways of living, those old behaviors. So you didn't really know how to be a Christian, right? And that may have created some tension in a Christian world. But I ask you, when, when did we in the church get the idea that people need to have their life all put together and all cleaned up before going to church? It's a little bit like saying to someone who is sick, get well and then go to the hospital. Those new believers, what do they do? They mature in Christ and then they study uh, the life and ministry of Christ and, and the word of God and start to understand the mission and the commandments, right? And if you've done that, if you've been down that path and you realize you start to rethink your own faith and your own life and your lifestyle changes. But here we've got interesting social dynamics right here in this early church. And the Hellenists no doubt felt judged like they were second class citizens, so that complaint arises. And Luke simply just says they were being neglected. Maybe they were getting no food or they were getting smaller portions of food. Context, again, is important because many needy people are part of this early church now. And front and center would have been the widows. The Greek kera, or kera is transl that's translated into widow really speaks of being forsaken. So these would have been the ones who were, who were uh, you know, front and center of that uh, issue. So in that culture, your value was based upon what you could contribute. So if you were productive in society or you could do intensive labor of some sort of work, you'd be valuable. But if you're a widow and you aren't able to do that and you aren't able to bear children, then there's a risk of even abuse or 
going without food or housing. So this complaint suggests that the Hebrew widows were getting some sort of preferential treatment and making them, the Hellenists, feel second class. Now this may seem like a minor issue in a church, but it doesn't take much. Kent Hughes shares a story that's relatively famous of a church split in Dallas, Texas. Lawsuits were filed. The church was split, and there were two factions. There's this group over here and this group over here. It's always terrible when something in church causes people to draw up sides. But we've got these two factions, and, it's, and their, their issues are so bad that they're driven to the higher authorities in the de- denomination, and ultimately one group is allowed to keep the church building, and another group goes off and plants another church nearby. During the proceedings, it came out that the troubles and conflicts all began at a church meal where an elder received a smaller slice of ham than a child seated next to him. Isn't that incredible? Imagine how that community perceived the people of that church when the newspaper retold that story for all to know. Danger is always present. Back to our text. Some of you are worried that I'm still on verse one. We're going to verse two now, and we'll speed up a little bit, okay? As the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the, Holy, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I think it's noteworthy here that there doesn't seem to be any argument or, or dispute as to whether or not this was a legitimate complaint. Maybe they knew that it was, but no matter what, they were willing to face the fact that there was a problem. We might assume that people were, were thinking or just desiring that Peter and John and the apostles would make these distributions, and that might be understandable. Uh, but you could see why this could have been a bad situation. But they knew they shouldn't get involved directly. They understood that God had called and equipped them to do what they were doing. They stayed on mission while making sure that the needs were met. Wisely, they communicated with everyone. Direct communication is so good for limiting rumors. It clarifies intentions and direction and minimizes speculation. It's been fascinating to me over the years of being in ministry to hear some of the ideas and conclusions that people in the church have drawn just because they didn't understand. Their speculations moved to to more thoughts and assumptions, and all of a sudden they had this wild idea built out here uh, because they didn't know what was happening. The apostles could have chosen the people to make the distributions, but they explained it. They let the people choose. Here are the requirements. People of good reputation, spirit-filled, wise, and a proper representation we see. Understand their statement. It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. It does not suggest that they were more important than other people. It doesn't suggest that it wasn't an important ministry to care for those who needed these, these provisions. It doesn't suggest that they were above that. These were ones who were with Jesus when he was feeding the 5,000 and 4,000. They didn't know this. They have some experience. And Jesus taught them to be servants, 
Matthew 23, the words of Jesus in verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. For this, the apostles, this was simply a matter of keeping the first things first in line with what they were called to do. The difference was that they were uh, the ones who followed Jesus. They were the ones chosen by him. They were the ones trained by him. They were the ones taught by him. And very important and very significant, they were the eyewitnesses of what Jesus had done. In that culture, this was all being transmitted by word of mouth. And so instead of having uh, so-and-so told me that so-and-so told me that they saw Jesus do this or they heard Jesus do this, these were the eyewitnesses, the ones who actually heard and actually saw these things take place. And it was critical in that culture. They were uniquely equipped for the task of transmitting the truths and teachings of Jesus. So they want others raised up for this task. And they're ultimately saying, listen, you choose them, but this is the criteria that must be there. Training and delegation is at the heart of discipleship. Ephesians 4, 13, pastors are, are to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Now look again at verse four. Let's look at, uh, read it one more time. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This was not a we do not want to do it. Find somebody else. It wasn't laziness. It didn't mean they were going to go rest in the shade somewhere listening to Spotify. They're saying, listen, we're going to keep our task of prayer and the ministry of the word. Ask any pastor who's been in it for a while, and in my years of being a pastor, you're amazed by the extra duties and the extra responsibilities and the extra things that, that come up in being a pastor. And many things are important, and they're very significant, very significant and valuable, and sometimes incredibly enjoyable, but they can be a distraction from the initial things that we're to do. And that's why it's very important to always go back to our, our mission and vision and what Jesus has called us to do. In that same uh, vein of experience, it was also so wonderful when someone else would step up and take something off of a plate of a pastor. Maybe the Lord brought someone's name to mind or the, the staff team says, she would be great for this. Or we say, he, he's showing great promise. Or the Holy Spirit prompts that individual to step up and volunteer. And I'm always amazed that it ends up that that person usually ends up doing it better than one of the pastors or staff members. The apostles knew where their focus needed to stay. Look with me at verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. We commonly call these seven men deacons, or, or servants, really. And what's interesting about these names that, that, that were called is that they were Greek Jews, uh, they, they were uh, people who could relate to those Hellenist Jews. 
Up until this point, we've seen that the ministry has really been dealing as a ministry to Jews. And, and here we start to see this first sign of a shift in the movement. Nicholas was a proselyte and a Gentile converted, converted over to Judaism. Nicholas was also from Antioch, where we see later becomes the headquarters of the Gentile ministry. Two of these that were chosen, Stephen and Philip, you may know that we will be seeing more of them as we proceed through this book. But what a success. People are pleased. We know of no further division over this particular issue. Look with me at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of, of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. How's that for a progress report? Doesn't a church want a progress report like that? God's word worked mightily. The number of disciples multiplied greatly. And then a curious comment from Luke. A great many of the priests came to faith. It's possible that this decision or the unity, even because of it, had some effect on the priests. These priests were probably not to be confused with the high priests, the chief priests, or the Sadducees. And that's not to say that maybe none of them responded to the gospel. But these priests were probably those who were not of the upper class. Now, what do we do with a passage like this? First of all, we think of other places in Scripture where we see this, these kinds of ideas. Certainly, when we look at the body of Christ and its many parts, we see this same concept here, don't we? We're all important under the headship of Christ. We look into the Old Testament and we see the importance of, of delegation and involving other people in ministry when we look at, the, at Moses, even. Our church is going through the book of Exodus. But I want to shift this now to just kind of the application from the standpoint of what do we do with problems in church ministry? First of all, I want to encourage you as an individual to be cautious about your complaints. Uh, as others have said it, and I agree with it. Uh, complaining is not a spiritual gift. So think twice before you jump into that. Uh, pray about your concerns and consider them deeply before you proceed with them. Ask the Spirit of God to check your own heart and your spirit about your complaints. Ask yourself questions like, is my concern self-seeking? And follow the biblical path. Make sure that, that you're speaking to the appropriate individual or individuals. Have the right heart. Understand also that change is often necessary. And within that, be willing to jump in. Be slower to, to critique or complain, but get involved and pray through those changes. Believe it or not, sometimes the best way we can minister when we're making disciples is to step aside. Sometimes discipleship process stops because we won't relinquish our favorite ministry when maybe we should. Step aside and say, I really think you need to do this. Understand that changes in, in worship styles and even structure of a church and whatever they, they may be, new strategies, new visions, those things are okay as long as they've been prayed through and are held against the, the spotlight of Scripture. Be understanding of your leaders and fellow church members. Don't be so quick to, to judge. Uh, remember, we may not always agree on things as a body of believers, uh, but it's okay as long as we're focused in and we're united on the central things, some of the peripheral things. It's okay if we have different ideas about those. 
When you look at other people's lives and you go, why aren't they doing this or why aren't they doing that at Parkview? Realize that many people are serving the body of Christ, but they're not doing it within the walls of a church. They're doing it in their schools, in their workplace, in their neighborhoods. So don't assume that people aren't involved. Be careful about always wishing that things were different. Understand that God is moving even in the current times. Quite often, these issues are a matter of attitude. Be careful of your attitude. Finally, be ready. Be ready to serve when needed. This past Sunday was kind of a neat time for our church in that we adjusted our service times and we had a baptism Sunday. But a neat thing had happened a few days earlier. One of the men from our church was at a gas station. He was just filling up his car with gas. And another man was also filling up his car with gas. And, and they were both veterans of the Navy. And the two began to talk. And this gentleman that was from our church started to notice that there was pain in this man's eyes and in his heart. And he literally just said, are you doing okay? And the man said, no, I'm not. And he, he said, hey, listen, do you want to just go inside mobile here and sit down at these booths and let's just talk? So they parked their cars and went in and sat in this mobile. This man's ministering to the other man, and in the course of the conversation, the man says, well, do you ever go to church? And the other man goes, you know, I've just been thinking about that and asking God whether or not I should do that, and, and, and maybe it means I should. And he says, listen, I want you to go to my church. And he told him about our church. That man showed up that last Sunday morning and he showed up at the wrong time because we'd changed our service time and he didn't know it. But fortunately, a man who was greeting that morning was also a Navy veteran. He came up and said, hey, listen, it's the wrong time, but listen, I want you to come back. And they connected a little bit. That man came back to the service and he stayed through the whole service and, and we had people that wanted to greet the pastors afterwards and this man came up and the other man that greeted him walked him up to me. I won't tell you about the details of the conversation other than this man just wanted to get right with Jesus and he wanted to be part of the next baptism. Cool conversation, but as these two were talking, this man, Eric, from our church said, hey, listen, I gotta get going. And I said, wait, stop. I said, I want you two to exchange numbers because I want you two to watch out for each other. And I said to the man who was visiting, I said, this man right here will be a brother to you and he will care for you and he will walk you through this. And the man standing right here said, yes, I will. See, I knew that because I had uh, plenty of time in my own life. I took time to mentor him personally. So I knew that he was ready for what I was asking him to do. And Eric just stood right up and says, yes, I'll do that. I contacted him later this week, and they've been connecting throughout the week. Be ready to serve no matter what comes up. It doesn't have to be an official ministry. You don't have to have a title. Just be ready to serve. Jump in and be used. Stop looking for somebody else to do maybe what God wants you to do. Discipleship. It's a big value at Parkview. To me, discipleship asks a couple key questions. Who's ahead of me? Who's discipling me? Who am I learning from? Who's mentoring me? But also, who is behind me? Who am I bringing along in this journey? I stand here today because I had godly parents who were careful to raise me to know the things of, of God. But God used other people along the way. I had a fifth grade Sunday school teacher who, 
whose name was Grace, and it couldn't have been a more appropriate name because myself and the worship pastor's son were just so hard to teach. ADHD all over the place, we couldn't focus, we were energetic, but you know, Grace loved us, and Grace taught us to love the Word of God, and she was incredibly patient. Over the years, there's youth pastors, but you know what? Actually, it was a youth volunteer that had a greater impact on me than my youth pastor. He was a man who was an engineer the rest of the week, but he came and he gave his time to go on youth trips and to be there. And, and I remember that he taught, but I don't remember what he was teaching. I don't remember what specific Bible things he taught. I just remember that he was faithful. And I remember thinking, man, I really want to be like Brian. I hope as you're sitting here today, you can think about those people. Who were that to you? Those people that without them, you may not know Jesus or you may not be here today. People that took time and to care for you and guide you and lead you toward the truth of Jesus Christ. Be thankful for them, but do what they did. I got some practical things I want to just throw in here to wrap it up, and then, then I'll pray and I'll turn it back over to Pastor Doug. Every local church that is effective in outreach will need to adjust at the leadership level to remain effective and maintain unity. It means change is going to happen as ministries happen. That's okay. That's okay. As long as it's prayed through and it's biblical. Adjustments must be identified and implemented under spiritual guidance. I know some of us love this. It's always used to, it's always been this way. But sometimes that's dangerous and that can become an idol. The congregation should be willing to serve using their giftedness for the health of the local church. Again, that doesn't even have to be serving within the walls or in the ministries of the church. Many times what we see as problems are actually possibilities. I know it's easy to get sideways when hardships come up and issues come up, but quite often that is when God begins to start doing something new, raising up people, moving things around, and cultivating the soil, if you will, for fresh ministry to take place. I want you to know, Parkview, there's nothing greater than serving our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you know that. I hope you're following somebody who's modeling that for you. I hope you desire to be a disciple and to make disciples for Jesus. Let me close in prayer, and we'll turn our focus toward our Savior and Lord Jesus. Father, I thank you for this time, and I thank you for this body of believers. And Lord, we want you to be exalted Father, we commit every issue, every decision that has to be made to you, and we want nothing more than what you want, Lord. So have your way. Father, now as we turn our hearts toward the cross and the empty tomb, we just thank you, Jesus, for being willing to do what you did for us. And Lord, the only reason we'd be interested in being disciples is because we want to follow after the one who has redeemed us and made us new and calls us his children. So Father, we honor you, and we do it in the name of Jesus. Amen.